My favorite way to unwind and dive into something more fun is June's Journey. The game lets me channel my inner detective and unlock compelling stories, strong female characters, and a mystery I want to solve. If you like true crime podcasts, it's the perfect game to play along while you listen. The Hidden Object Mystery Game will put your detective skills to the test in the roaring 1920s. You play as June Parker as she tries to solve her sister's murder and along the way uncovers family secrets. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Mystery, danger, romance all await you if you download the game now. I'm on chapter four and wondering how these clues will help me crack the case of who did it and why. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. He was an unapologetic ladies man until she captured his heart. He expected them to be married, to have children. He loved her like no one had ever loved her. He was her knight in shining armor. But the couple's plans for a happily ever after are stopped cold one frigid February afternoon. I see him and he's laying face forward. He was so stiff and so cold. I realized he was dead in that moment. There's a great deal of blood on the front of his T-shirt. The ensuing investigation uncovers a web of potential suspects. The only drama that was ever really surrounding Lauren was with women. But it's the tangle of one woman's lies that detectives must ultimately unravel. She was an extremely jealous woman. She started to do one thing after another, and it would get crazier and crazier every time. Her entire version of events was a lie. I love you to death. I can't have you. No one can. I first met Lauren when I was about 10 years old. We introduced ourselves, and we were thick as thieves pretty much from that moment on. Lauren High was born on April 20th, 1988 in Milwaukee and raised an only child by his mother and grandmother. His mother and grandmother, very smart, very hardworking black women, self-sufficient homeowners, they had very high expectations of Lauren. He was raised a certain way with certain principles and morals. 
When Lauren was 18, his world was turned upside down when his mother died suddenly from a heart attack. It was absolutely the most heartbreaking reaction to something that I had ever seen. And he was absolutely never the same after that. After his mother died, I felt like a piece of him just left. He just didn't know how to fill that void. So he was just, you know, looking for love in a lot of places that it was improper. An attractive and charming young man, Lauren dated plenty of women, but he didn't find love until he met Natasha Bent. Natasha was cool, very, very, very polite young lady, very respectful. Um, she was nothing but a good influence on him. By his mid-20s, Lauren had two daughters with Natasha. He was a great father. He read them books. He would tuck them in at night. He prayed with them. The values that his mother instilled in him, he was really putting that into his girls, too. Though Lauren was dedicated to his kids, he found it more difficult to maintain a commitment to Natasha. Lawrence Young living like a bachelor. And I think that that was a lot of the uh, issues in their relationship. Lauren and Natasha remained cordial after they split ways. I don't think that it affected them too much negatively because they were able to communicate for the children's sake. Unfettered by a relationship, Lauren enjoyed a bachelor lifestyle. Lauren was a little bit of a ladies' man. He was very charming. Lauren was very sweet. And he was very easy to like, very easy to love. Lauren finally found a reason to settle down in 2015 when he began dating Portia Humphrey. Portia had the gift of gab. She was a smooth talker. She definitely could adapt to any surrounding. Portia came across as poised and put together, but like Lauren, her childhood in Milwaukee was shaped by tragedy. Her mom had killed her dad in front of her when she was younger. Her mom was in prison. She was put into the system. She turned to men to fill the gap that she felt like she didn't get from anybody else. Still in her teens, Portia began a relationship that ultimately resulted in four children, but it didn't last. When 29-year-old Portia started dating Lauren, they both fell hard and fast. He loved her like no one had ever loved her. She felt like he was her knight in shining armor, and she felt like she was gonna be with him forever. Lauren felt that Portia shared the values that had been instilled in him by his mother. She had a nice home. Her kids were really well taken care of. She did a good job being a mommy. He genuinely loved Portia. He expected them to be married, to have children. But after almost a year and a half, tensions began to surface in the relationship. Portia talked about a couple fights she had with Lauren. Um, each time it was either about money or she, she went through his phone while he was in the tub or he's texting this girl. 
She just didn't trust him. She was an extremely jealous woman. He had liked somebody's post on Facebook, and they had a full-fledged argument about that. So they had broken up. He was just done with all the drama. He was done with all the unnecessary bickering. As Lauren and Portia moved on from the relationship, they intended to maintain a friendship, and both found new things to be excited about. I honestly believe Portia was on the track, getting her life together. She had got two jobs. She had a nice apartment. She had a new guy. In early 2017, Lauren started a long-distance relationship with an old friend, Suzette Bourgeois. Lauren and I, we were like best friends, really close. We didn't go a day without speaking to each other. And if we did, then there was something seriously wrong. And on February 5th, 2017, it becomes clear something is seriously wrong. Responding to a report of a potential suicide, Milwaukee police detective James Hutchinson arrives on the scene. I see that there's a great deal of blood on the front of his T-shirt. There's also a gunshot wound found in his chest. We didn't find any firearm that may have been used there's things that were missing that should have been there if, if Lauren killed himself. All the detectives have is a dead body and no gun. So they've got to find any way possible to get information. Whether or not it's the killer or a witness, they're looking for information. Coming up, the crime scene tells a story about Lauren's final moments. On that piece of glass, there was uh, some white powder. We believe that to be some sort of drug use. It appears as though Lauren may have been shot with his own weapon. And details of personal entanglements unearth a wellspring of suspects. Lauren had a lot of friends and female acquaintances that he was dating and seeing. On February 5th, 2017, Milwaukee police detectives are at the home of 28-year-old Lauren High, who was found deceased on his living room floor. All we could tell at the scene was that he had a gunshot wound in the center of his chest. As we started to look around, we noticed there was an ambient temperature within the house of only 47 degrees. It doesn't take very long for a human body to start to decay. And one of the early signs of that is the odor that's emanated from the body, some discoloration, things of that nature. Um, those weren't readily evident in this case um, because his residence was almost a refrigerator temperature. Time of death is, is hard to do to begin with, um, but in a room that was close to being a freezer, that doesn't allow a lot of decay that might give you a better idea as to, to time of death. As detectives take a look around the home, nothing seems obviously out of place. Valuable things or things that were worth money were still present within the residence, so it didn't appear to be a burglary. When you see no signs of forced entry, it leads you to, to one of two conclusions. Either A, someone came in the same way Curtis came in, or B, the victim let his killer in. 
In the living room, investigators find a piece of evidence that could be crucial to solving the case. We see a cell phone near his body. We find that that's an item that we need to get as much information from as we can. We can't access it right away because there's a password on it. That evidence is transported back to the Milwaukee Police Department headquarters and it's processed there. Detective Hutchinson also spots a piece of glass on Lauren's couch. On that piece of glass, there was uh, some white powder, a uh, clear as a black bag, uh, as well as a razor blade. So uh, right away, we believe that to be some sort of drug use. On the glass, detectives find a single fingerprint. That latent print is recovered and then sent to the latent print division to see if they can identify whose print it is. That'll take some time. Detectives step outside to speak with the man who found Lauren's body, Curtis Peterson. He was a longtime friend of Lauren, obviously upset that he found his friend dead on the living room floor. However, Curtis did shed some light onto uh, what was going on in Lauren's life. The police were asking me what kind of people did he hang around? Um, do you know of any uh, anybody who would hurt Lauren? Did you know that Lauren does cocaine? Did he owe anyone money? And I could like absolutely answer no to all of those questions. Curtis says that Lauren does use a little bit of marijuana, that he's not a drug dealer. This is a small drug user. Frankly, other than the white powder in the residence, there was no evidence that there was anything but marijuana usage. Curtis tells detectives that Lauren generally steered clear of trouble, with only one exception. Lauren had a lot of friends and female acquaintances that he was dating and seeing. The only drama that was ever really surrounding Lauren was with women. Curtis tells them that he began to worry about his friend when he wasn't returning his calls earlier that day. His worry only grew when Lauren's girlfriend, Suzette Bourgeois, contacted him, expressing concern for Lauren. Around 1 o'clock that day, Suzette and Curtis are talking about how the victim had seemed a little depressed, that he gets down around the time of his mother's death, which was around this time. She's like, hey, can you please go and check on Lauren. I haven't heard from him. Uh, we talk every day, like literally, and his phone is never off. And his phone has been off for three days. Curtis says when he found Lauren dead, it wasn't just Suzette's comments that led him to first suspect suicide. Curtis did tell us that Lauren did in fact have a uh, 40 caliber Glock firearm uh, at his house. I knew he owned one and he always had it out. Though they've ruled out the possibility of suicide, detectives are interested in Lauren's gun, which was not located during their search of the home. The 40 caliber firearm that Curtis told us that Lauren had, it was missing. It appears as though Lauren may have been shot with his own weapon. After speaking with Curtis, investigators are eager to talk with Lauren's long-distance girlfriend, Suzette. They reach her by phone at her home in Atlanta. When we first spoke to Suzette, we wanted to verify the things Curtis was telling us, and we wanted to make sure that uh, she was actually in Georgia during the time frame of Lauren's murder. I told detectives, Lauren and I spoke 
every single day, whether it was sending, you know, memes on social media or texting or FaceTiming. She says that four days ago, the constant communication came to an abrupt halt. Last time she had any contact with him was around the evening hours, 6 or 7 p.m. on February 1st, 2017. Suzette confirms she asked Curtis to check on Lauren. And the next thing she knew, Curtis delivered devastating news. I just fell to the ground with my phone in my hand, listening to Curtis. And he just kept saying, he's dead, he's dead. The last time she had talked to him, Lauren had indicated that he was depressed and having problems with Portia. Suzette explains that 30-year-old Portia Humphrey was an ex-girlfriend Lauren couldn't seem to shake. Every single time he mentioned Portia, it was something just either manipulative, mean, or cruel that she had done. There was just something very disrupting about Portia. Just days before the murder, Suzette witnessed their volatile relationship firsthand during a video call. Portia showed up to his house maybe a week or so before he was murdered. She just kept banging on the door, and finally they opened the door, and she was like, I need to use the bathroom. From what I saw and heard, she went to the bathroom, and she came out naked and laid across the couch. She started to do one thing after another, and it would get crazier and crazier every time. That's when he was, like, completely done with her. Based on her statement, investigators find it unlikely that Suzette had anything to do with the murder, and her alibi is solid. We did uh, verify that she was uh, in Georgia at the time of Lauren's death. She didn't have anything to do with what had happened. After speaking with Suzette, investigators fan out to talk with Lauren's neighbors. One of the neighbors that lived near Lauren did tell us he had seen Lauren just a couple of days prior uh, to February 5th in passing. They kind of said hello to each other, and that was it. He was alive and well when he was seen by that neighbor that day. Uh, so that closed the window from February 3rd to February 5th. With Lauren's complicated personal life emerging as a possible factor in his death, investigators are eager to track down Portia. But before they can, they get word that another woman has just shown up at the crime scene. A woman by the name of Casey Spencer comes up to an officer who's on the perimeter and asks about Lauren. She's close to the victim, and immediately we want to get as much information from that person as possible. And at that point, frankly, we don't rule out anyone. Especially after a crime of passion, it's not unusual for the murderer to return to the crime scene once police arrive. Coming up, startling new information shifts the investigator's focus. I was able to let the police know that Lauren had started seeing another young lady. And a routine interview ends with an unexpected arrest. We believe there's a reason she's obstructing the case, and we need to find out what that is. 
she had information that no one else in the entire world had. Investigators in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, are looking into the shooting death of 28-year-old Lauren High. When Casey Spencer shows up at the crime scene, investigators immediately question whether she might have been involved. She says she heard about Lauren from a friend down the block, but her appearance on the crime scene has detectives suspicious. My friend said that his family lived next door to Lauren, and they saw all of the police officers there. They were able to say that there was a deceased person in the lower unit of the duplex, and that was the unit that Lauren lived in. So I drove down to the residence, and I was just so confused, and I was crying. Casey tells police that she and Lauren are just friends. Like Curtis and Suzette did before her, she paints Lauren's love life as a complicated web. I was able to tell the police that he was involved with Portia. I was able to let the police know that Lauren had started seeing another young lady during that time. Casey says the new woman in Lauren's life isn't Suzette or Portia, but that's all she knows. I never knew the young lady's name. Lauren never gave me her name. But I was able to let them know that Portia had been in his life recently and that there had been some issues between Lauren and Portia at that time. Lauren was into marijuana, but I never knew Lauren to be into anything hard. Lauren did let me know that Portia could have possibly been into hard drugs. And there was word that Lauren had experimented with it. Had Portia brought the mysterious glass and white substance into Lauren's apartment? To find out, investigators track down Portia and bring her in for an interview. We don't have the fingerprint evidence back yet. We don't have the cell phone information back yet. That's all in the process. That was why they contacted her and asked her to come down to speak to them, was simply an attempt to put together a timeline of the last moments of the victim's life. Portia acknowledges that she and Lauren hadn't been successful in making a clean break when they ended their relationship, but insists they were on good terms. She says that they have a relationship that's kind of an on again, off again that they had broken up, but that they were fine. Investigators ask Portia to help establish a timeline for Lauren's last days. The information that detectives had was that the Lauren's body was found on February 5th. A neighbor had indicated that the victim had possibly been seen alive on February 3rd. So they're just trying to figure out when the last time she may have seen him alive. But before detectives can ask Portia about February 3rd, she presents them with a detailed account of where she was on February 1st, two days before Lauren was allegedly seen alive by his neighbor. She comes in with a lot of paperwork, and it's paperwork that she says is going to show where she was uh, on the day that she believes the detectives are going to talk to her about, which is February 1st. 
it was unusual to the detectives at that time that she's providing this very detailed accounting of events on February 1st, when we thought at that point that Lauren hadn't been killed the February 3rd. So that became very suspicious. Investigators ask Portia if she knows anything about the glass and white powder found on Lauren's couch. They asked her if she'd ever touched that glass. She stated she never touched it. Portia said she hadn't been there in weeks. Detectives ask the same question about Lauren's gun. At first, Portia says she had handled his gun in the past. Then she changes her mind. As she's communicated to during the rest of the interview, she then says, no, I never touched Lauren's gun. Uh, and that became suspicious. Well, why did you say that you had it and then later say you never touched it? She contradicted herself in the interview. Catching Portia in a lie gives investigators legal grounds for an arrest. When Portia is placed under arrest, detectives take possession of her purse, which she brought with her. She was arrested for obstructing, but we believe there's a reason she's obstructing the case, and we need to find out what that is. That includes obtaining a search warrant for her apartment in Waukesha. The next day, investigators take a search warrant to Portia's house and are met there by her sister, who tells detectives she'd seen Portia on February 2nd, three days before Lauren's body was found. She said that Portia was acting very depressed that day, was upset about something, and that she said that she had been contacted by someone who said that Lauren had been shot and he's in the hospital. As a SNAP listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every case I learn about, I'm reminded how much I want to prioritize my vigilance and preparation. That's why I use and recommend Simply Safe Home Security. My cameras have alerted me about trespassers and even given me a sense of security knowing my home is safe even when I'm not there. Simply Safe offers protection for the whole house with advanced sensors that not only detect break-ins, but fires, floods, and other threats to your home and getting you the help you need for each scenario. The indoor security cameras offer privacy shutters to ensure physical privacy when you want it. Plus, you can try Simply Safe for 60 days risk-free. If you don't love it, return your system for a full refund. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/snapped. That's simplysafe.com/snapped. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. So on February 2nd, Porsche's telling her sister 
that Lauren had been shot. No one knew that Lauren had been shot. No one knew anything about this. That means that Portia had information that no one else in the entire world had. She is now a suspect in this homicide. Nobody else knew that. Portia's sister tells police that later that day, she noticed something odd at Portia's apartment. She told police that when she went to go take a shower, she saw a bag of clothing, including maroon jacket and other items, in the tub. As detectives conduct the search of Portia's home, they find the clothes her sister described in the bathroom. During the search warrant, the police find the coat, they find the boots, they find the scarf. They appeared to be wet, and they smelled of cleaner. Those items of clothing were uh, taken by us and inventoried for some further analysis. The rest of the search fails to yield additional evidence. We did not find the weapon. We did not find anything other than the clothes. Portia was released from custody after a short time, and uh, uh, the investigation continued with her not in custody. Another potential source of evidence becomes available when investigators learn Lauren's phone has been unlocked. There is no signs of life on his phone after February 1st. We are now realizing, hey, this idea that he was seen on February 3rd, that's wrong. That timeline is off. The neighbor was mistaken as to the day he saw the victim alive. With his phone indicating that Lauren possibly died on February 1st, investigators try to make sense of Portia's odd behavior during her interview. Her behavior was more like she's trying to cover her tracks and less like she's trying to cooperate in the investigation like the other witnesses were. Detectives also find that Lauren and Portia exchanged multiple messages that day. There were a number of text messages between the victim and Portia. It was very clear that there was a decision made that they were going to have a kind of a conversation to air the grievances, maybe put it all behind them. Portia texts the victim, asks if he's home. The victim indicates that he is. She says, OK. However, just after midnight, Portia texts Lauren back. It sounds like they had plans. Uh, Portia wasn't able to make it and then was apologizing to Lauren for not coming over. The exchange between Portia and Lauren indicates more reconciliation than strife. Portia's messages in and of themselves were not immediately suspicious that she's the one that killed Lauren. If Portia didn't go to Lauren's home that night, who did? As detectives comb through the messages, they find that Lauren communicated with another woman on February 1st. We also see that he's having some communication with his new girlfriend, Dachanel. Detectives consider the possibility that Dachanel might be the mystery girlfriend Casey referred to. This was the first time we had heard this name through the investigation. We see this in his phone. We see this text exchange going on between her and him uh, uh, on the evening of the date that we believe that Lauren was killed. She becomes somebody that we have to talk to, somebody very significant at that point. 
Coming up, detectives interview Dachanel. She immediately recognized that piece of glass with the powdery substance on it. And a major break reveals a killer. It's just pinging, boom, one after another, just constantly hitting at the victim's residence. After combing through the phone records of 28-year-old murder victim Lauren High, Milwaukee police have discovered that Lauren was texting a new love interest in the hours before police believe he was killed. When we look at Lauren's phone records, Dashnell was somebody that was communicating with him, and that became significant. So she was somebody that we had to talk to. On February 11th, detectives interview Dashnell Harris. She is troubled by the news of Lauren's murder. We're here to talk to you about a homicide. She says, it's not Lauren, is it? She indicated that she had not heard that the victim was dead, but that she hadn't heard from him since February 1st, when she had seen him in person in the morning. Dashnell had actually spent the night with him on the 31st of January into the 1st of February. She says that she left that day and that was the last time she had seen him. She then relays also that she had a text exchange with Lauren the evening of the 1st of February. That text exchange was a conversation where Lauren was saying that he's having a much needed conversation with an ex and asked Dachanel to wish him luck. When Dachanel checked in with him later that night to see how it went, Lauren never responded. About 11.25, she sent him another text saying, well, I guess that conversation's still going or words to that effect. And Dachanel had a feature on her phone that she showed the detectives that showed when a text message was read and when it hadn't been read. The first text exchange, obviously, with Lauren was read because he texted back to her. Uh, but the second one at 11.25 p.m. that evening on the 1st was not read by Lauren. The unread text helps detectives narrow down their murder time frame even further. The fact that it was not read also became very significant for the fact that we believe that Lauren was killed now sometime between the hours of 10 p.m. and 11.25 p.m. on February 1st. Based on their interview with Dachanel, investigators find no indication that she was involved in the murder. Between her job and her roommates, Dachanel is able to give a pretty tight alibi of where she's been the past week. Before they leave, investigators have one final exercise for Dachanel. She's shown pictures from the scene and asked, is anything out of place or different from when you were there that day? Dashnell was able to point to the couch and say that this piece of glass with the drug residue on it was in fact not there when she left the morning of February 1st. Detectives then get word that the piece of glass has been processed by the crime lab. The drugs were MDMA or ecstasy, and there was a fingerprint present on this glass, a fingerprint belonging to Portia Humphrey. Portia was saying that she never went to Lauren's house that day. And now we have her fingerprint 
uh, on this piece of glass that was in fact not there when Deschanel left the morning of February 1st. To further strengthen their case, investigators comb back through items collected from Portia after her first interview. They find a bus pass in her wallet. MCTS bus passes can be tracked, and buses are equipped with security cameras. They're able to get the bus records to let us know what times that day on February 1st she used the bus. That security video uh, shows us exactly what clothes that she's wearing. We're able to see that Portia's in possession of a bag and also that she's wearing a burgundy coat, a scarf, and some type of hat or beret on her head. The clothes match the ones detectives recovered from Portia's bathtub. She washed the clothes. Portia was attempting to get rid of whatever trace evidence or DNA evidence she thought may be on her clothes. As for the bag, investigators suspect it might have contained Lauren's 40 Glock. She somehow got rid of that gun. We believe that she took it from Lauren's apartment and somewhere got rid of it, but didn't take it back to her house. Sensing they are closing in on Portia, Milwaukee detectives continue the push for more evidence. We are gonna need information that would let us know whether or not Portia was at the victim's residence on February 1st. That's the last piece of the puzzle we were looking for. Finally, in March, Portia's phone records come in and detectives land the break they've been looking for. What was important was that phone showed a series, if I'm not mistaken, of over 100 hits between 7.30 and 11.30, hitting at the victim's residence. It's just pinging, boom, one after another, sometimes within 10 feet, sometimes a little farther than that, constantly, regularly hitting at the victim's residence. She was in Lauren High's house for about four hours that evening and her phone put her there the entire time. Prosecutors are now ready to upgrade the charges against Portia. Portia was initially arrested for uh, obstructing an officer. However, she was released from custody. After a short time, detectives now had reason to arrest her again. I'm now convinced we have enough to charge her with homicide. We now know that her entire version of events was a lie. We now know that she was present uh, with the victim on the day he died. That disproved her story, and in my opinion, showed that we could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she killed the victim. We charged her with first-degree reckless homicide. Coming up, detectives press Portia for her side of the story. We want to go over some things with you about some uh, new things that came up in the case. And one big question remains. We don't know what happened in that room. By March 2017, investigators in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, have just charged 30-year-old Portia Humphrey with first-degree murder in the death of her ex-boyfriend, Lauren High. We want to go over some things with you about some uh, new 
things that came up in the case, um, let you know what's going on. Um, see if you got any questions for us. See if you got something to say about it. What's been going on with you since you got released? Everything okay? Portia gets arrested, does not provide us any more details about what happened. She essentially requests an attorney, and that's it. I just assumed it would go unsolved, like a, a thousand other murders do in Milwaukee, um, which hurt more because there was no closure. But then when we found out it was Portia, everything made sense. Like, the lead up to that happening made sense. Her reaction when I told her made sense. Just before her trial is set to take place in January 2018, Portia reaches an agreement with prosecutors. The defense indicated that Portia might be willing to plead guilty, and we offered a second-degree reckless homicide. The important factors was we wanted to make certain that she was convicted of homicide because she had killed the victim. But one of the factors that came into our decision was we don't know what she was going to say if this went to trial. It only made sense to accept the plea to that. At her sentencing in March, prosecutors assert that the evidence proves Portia took Lauren's life. Her cell phone records clearly show that she was there. The fingerprint evidence that shows that she's there the fact that she attempted to manufacture an alibi to police showing up with all sorts of information when they didn't even know what day the victim died. Prosecutors cannot hide the lingering questions around what actually happened inside Lauren's home that night. We don't know what happened in that room. I, I can't point to a single fact as to what happened. There's no fight that anybody heard. There's no defensive wounds that we can see. We're left with a gigantic question mark. No one else was present besides Lauren and Portia. We don't know exactly how this went down, why it went down, and really the only person that can answer that is Portia. Defense attorneys finally present Portia's version of what took place on the night of February 1st, 2017. The defense attorney indicated that Portia had gone over to the residence, that the two of them had been intoxicated, that the victim and Portia had had some discussions about how to handle a firearm. According to the defense, Lauren pulled out his gun, offering to show Portia how to use it. She mishandled it, pulled the trigger, and shot him in the chest. Lauren's friends find Portia's story hard to swallow. I do not think that she accidentally shot him. That's complete hogwash. I don't believe any of it. Portia knew exactly what her intentions were when she went over there, and it wasn't to play with a gun. It was to kill Lauren. In March, a judge hands down Portia's sentence. She pleads guilty to second-degree reckless homicide and is sentenced to nine years in prison. She only got nine years, I'm sorry, for what she did. And where was the justice in that? Because of the level of pain I feel when I have to recount seeing his body lay there 
um, knowing the person that did this and knowing that justice would not be served. This is a total mockery of this man's life. Like, I can't believe you can kill someone and get nine years in prison for it. Exactly what took place inside Lauren's home that night remains a mystery. But for those who knew the couple, Portia's motive is crystal clear. I honestly don't think that she ever had any man to love her the way that Lauren loved her. So once she found that she didn't want to share it with anybody, I love you to death, no one can have you. If I can't have you, no one can. Porsche Humphrey will be released in 2026. She will be 39 years old. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.